1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to cover verses 6 through 10. It's been a little over seven months since Billy Graham passed away. Uh, when he died, he was nine months shy of 100. So he almost reached uh, triple digits in age. And of course, you know Billy Graham, one of the most influential evangelists, perhaps the most influential evangelist uh, in American history. Um, he's known for leading millions of people to Christ by some estimates. Um, his, uh, the Billy Graham Center, the museum that recognizes his work is featured just outside of Chicago and thousands of people make their way there. They go through that museum every year. Again, uh, probably, I don't know for sure, but probably the best known uh, Christian to live at least uh, in the last hundred years or so. Well, what many people don't realize is that when Billy Graham was first starting out on the revival trail back in the 1940s, he was actually overshadowed by a much more gifted evangelist by the name of Charles Templeton. Uh, Charles and, and Billy were very good friends. In fact, Billy Graham would say in his uh, autobiography, he would say about Charles, he's one of the few men that I ever loved in my life. They traveled together. Uh, they preached at revivals together. Uh, they stayed together as they traveled. They worshiped God together. They knew each other very well. Um, they were, in fact, they were both incredible evangelists, but even Billy Graham would say that Charles Templeton was a better evangelist, more gifted than he was. In fact, there were weeks in the early 50s when Templeton would preach to thousands of people uh, night after night, like in 1953 when he spoke at Soldier Field in Chicago. Uh, there was a week where he preached, and, and over that span, preached to over 70,000 people. Thousands of people then responded by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as a, as a result of this man's ministry. For 20 years, he was a whirlwind in the Christian community, a tremendous influencer for the gospel. But then, in 1957, after leading thousands of people to receive Christ, Charles Templeton himself turned his back on Jesus completely renounced Christianity. He said he didn't believe in God anymore. He said he was done with all of this Christianity stuff. He'd spent time, but he didn't, he didn't believe in it anymore. He would remain an atheist, or at least an agnostic, until he died at the age of 85 in 2001. Well, just about three years, or three to five years before Templeton died, he wrote a memoir called Farewell to God. Farewell to God. And in it, he put on paper really some of the most heartbreaking stuff some of the most heart-wrenching stuff that you would ever read or ever hear anyone say or see anyone write. He details how he went from telling people about God to getting to a place where he couldn't even believe in God's existence. And then he ultimately rejected God. In his memoir, he says this, when finally I shook free of Christianity, I began to see all of life differently. The things that had once seemed important now seemed trivial. Things I'd never seen the meaning of or the essence of I began to appreciate for the first time. Even though he said that during his final days on earth, he admitted that he, quote, missed Jesus terribly and in fact wept over it as he was sort of fading physically and he slipped into eternity. He never really turned back to faith in Christ. He did say that he, he, he longed to, 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 to be, to, to have this fellowship with Jesus, but he just couldn't even believe that it was possible. And we read stories like that, and we can't help but think some level maybe of fear. Uh, we feel heartbroken. We, we feel burdened for those who, uh, who have turned their back on the faith in such a way. 
And now we all people, we know people like Charles Templeton, maybe not of such notoriety, of course, but we probably all know people in our lives, in our background, who at one point have said they love Jesus, they profess to be a follower of Jesus, maybe even served in a prominent ministry, but then later on in life, they, they turned their backs on Jesus Christ. We all know people, I have people in my own family, former uh, uh, people who, that, I, that I worked with, people who are friends, who even committed to a life of missions, but then turned their back on Jesus. In fact, a pastor friend of mine, I had lunch with about a year ago, he shared with me how his grown son had gone away to a public university to study philosophy. And you know, I mean, philosophy is a, is a good discipline, I guess. It's something uh, that has benefit to us, but it's a, it's a wasteland, uh, you know, in terms of the, the secular universities. You just don't find a lot of people of spiritual insight. And this pastor friend was telling me that his son went away to, to university to study philosophy and just totally turned his back on Jesus. Said, I want nothing to do with the Christian faith that I've learned under you for so many years. And we think about that and we hear these stories. And again, it, it's kind of frightening stuff, isn't it? We think, well, what, what does a person do that would cause him to turn like that? Well, the good news is, the comforting news is God always keeps his own. God will never let a true child of his wander off indefinitely. He is both the, the, the author and the finisher of our faith. As we sing here at Capshaw, he will hold us fast. When our faith is fickle, when we seem uh, like we just can't go on, God is the one who keeps us because God is faithful. Even though we are prone to wonder, he always finishes what he starts. So there's comforting news in that. But we must say that God keeps his own through means. He keeps his own through means. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul warns Timothy about those who have departed from the faith, those who have turned their backs on God, they have apostatized. And then he offers really three faith-strengthening rhythms. That's what we're going to look at this morning, three faith-strengthening rhythms. 1 Timothy chapter 4, let me start by reading verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, remember what's going on here. Uh, this church that, that Paul started, Paul and Timothy spent almost two years there at Ephesus, uh, discipling and, and, and pouring their hearts and their energy into these people, only to see that when Paul left, things kind of went off the rails. False teachers had crept in. They were leading people away. They were adding things to the gospel. So the church is in a bit of turmoil. Paul writes this letter to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, as a way to sort of guide him and instruct him to make things right, to lead in the church in a way that facilitates growth, that protects the church. He tells Timothy that even though some have turned from the faith, they have apostatized. He says, if he will continue to teach in the way that Paul has instructed him, he will be, quote, a good servant, faithful to the task that he has been given. Now, Paul, uh, he gives this encouragement to Timothy, and Timothy probably needed it because many of those people who, uh, who were railing against Timothy were much older than he was. And so Timothy needed some encouragement. Have you ever thought, just as a side note, or recognized how valuable just a word of encouragement is? You experience this in, in your own life. You know, uh, I think engineers get a bad rap sometimes. I mean, yes, they are linear thinkers and process-oriented and all those things, right? But I have been so encouraged by so many people at this church, 
so encouraged by emails, notes, texts, whatever it is. And you, we see just a word of encouragement can do so much. Paul says to Timothy, if you'll do these things, you will be a good servant. Well, what are these things? If you teach these things, what are they? Well, this is a phrase that occurs three times in, in uh, chapter 4. These things are all the statements about Jesus that Paul has articulated throughout his letter. Statements about Jesus' incarnation, chapter 1. His kingship, uh, chapter 1b. Uh, his mediatorial work, chapter 2. His resurrection, chapter 3. His saving power, chapter 4. It's the summation of everything that Paul has taught about Jesus. And Paul says, teach these things. The last part of verse 6, Paul sums it up again. He says, being trained in the words of faith. So that's an important phrase, the words of faith. And of the good doctrine that you have followed. The, words of, the phrase, words of faith, is a reference to, to the announcement that God sent his son for a broken world to redeem those under the curse of the law. God is restoring all things in the person of Jesus Christ. So the words, the words of faith is a, is a reference to the gospel. The, the phrase good doctrine in, in verse 6 is, the, is all the apostolic teaching about Jesus. Again, his incarnation, his victory over sin and death, his victory over temptation, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension. Paul says, in other words, to Timothy, keep putting Christ in front of people. Keep feeding people Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, teach these things. Don't neglect to teach everything I've told you, everything you've learned about the person and work of Jesus. All of it is critical. It's through the communication of doctrine, which must necessarily point to Jesus Christ, if it's good doctrine, if it's sound doctrine, that Timothy will safeguard his own salvation, humanly speaking, and the salvation of his hearers. So here, here's the first means. This is our first point this morning. You're taking notes. The first rhythm of the faithful. God keeps his own through a steady diet of Christ-centered teaching. This is a rhythm by which God strengthens our faith, by which he keeps his own Christ-centered teaching. Through teaching about Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished, what he did for sinful, broken people like you and me. Paul says, this is what you've been trained in. This is what you have learned from me. Continue to teach these things and you will be a faithful servant. Now, you may be wondering, isn't that what every church teaches about Jesus? And the answer is, sadly, no. Many churches, in fact, many ministries focus almost constantly on what we need to do rather than what God and Christ has done for us. It's what I encounter almost every time I go on vacation, it seems. And, and I, if I'm being very transparent with you, I'm embarrassed to say it's what I preach for the first five years of my ministry. Do more, try harder, why aren't you, why are you, just more moralistic stuff. This is what you get at most churches. So I thought every church was about preaching Jesus. No, most churches are about preaching what we need to do. Forgetting about what God has done for us in Jesus. Of course, this naturally leads to frustration, despair, hopelessness, or self-righteousness, pride, shallow forms of spirituality. What we need as believers is teaching about Jesus. What he did for us in order to restore this right relationship with God. The love that God demonstrated to us at incredible cost 
to make us his very own. What we need is to be reminded that the wrath of God for sinners was poured out on the sinless one who lived for us, died for us, and is still interceding with us, for us, so that by trusting in him, we could be made once for all righteous and forgiven. Now, going back to my opening illustration about Charles Templeton, even Templeton would admit in the, toward the, really toward the end of his ministry that he had kind of grown tired of his sort of evangelistic shtick, he would say. He said he grew tired of pleading with people to come to Jesus. It just felt forced. He felt like he was manipulating. He was kind of going on and on and on. And what he realized was he, his focus had become on how the audience should respond, how they needed to surrender, how they needed to give up, how they needed to give their lives and so on. And he really wasn't focusing very much at all on what Jesus had done. And he said he grew so weary of this. And what happened was even the one speaking the message had grown spiritually cold. Even as he was preaching to thousands because the emphasis had shifted from what God has done in Christ to what we're supposed to do. And it led to a spiritual dryness. Now, of course, just getting Christ-centered teaching from someone else, while critical, is not enough. We ourselves must revel in, immerse ourselves in God's love and his power. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Paul says, has nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. That is speculating on matters not clearly taught in the scripture. Getting into debates about genealogies and lineage and so on. He says, no, don't, don't get caught up in that. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness. This is a straightforward imperative from God. It's really the most, the most direct imperative we have in this particular passage. It's the Greek word gymnazo. Um, and, you know, I don't... It's, it's, if I'm going to use a Greek word, I, I prefer to translate it. And if you look on the um, inside your bulletin, you'll see that I gave this sermon the title Gymnazo. Um, again, the, the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And, and I don't like to trot out Greek words a lot, but sometimes it's, it's important. And I normally would have just translated this word and used that as my title. But the word Gymnazo literally means train naked. And I thought if I, just, if I just give the message that title and someone doesn't listen to it and they try to apply it, you know, I'm going to be, I don't want to be, be uh, culpable for any sort of bizarre uh, training methods. But the word actually comes from the world of athletics. For, it's a word from which we get gymnasium. And, you know, Paul loved uh, athletic imagery because for the Greeks, competition was huge. In fact, much of the cultural, the life actually revolved around Athletics, and, and in order to not be hampered by or restricted by, you know, garments, the Greeks would actually train naked. Now, by the time this, this word is used here, in the middle of the first century, it, the word gymnazo had come to mean intense training, not so much naked training, but it had a very sort of holistic approach to it. To train oneself meant to be involved in a full-scale and lifelong effort to get one's mind, body, and spirit ready for the rigors of competition. In light of that context, the training that Timothy and we are to participate in, again, is the lifelong process 
of disciplining ourselves in a holistic way to know and learn more of the grace and knowledge of God. Here's a second faith-strengthening rhythm. God sanctifies his own. So we've already looked at how God keeps his own. God sanctifies his own through the spiritual disciplines. Now, please hear me. Make no mistake about this. God, just as God is the one who justifies, God is the one who sanctifies. Any spiritual growth that we enjoy, and those who are alive, will grow spiritually over time. Sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's burdensome. But anything that's alive will grow. So those who are alive will grow. But any growth that we enjoy, any progress in humility, any awareness of our own sin, any ability to rest by faith in Jesus Christ, all of that happens as a result of the Holy Spirit's transforming grace. God still gets all the credit. He is the one not only who justifies, he is the one who sanctifies. But there's a reason that we have these passages in the Bible. God wants us to avail ourselves of those means by which he will transform us. Spiritual growth always happens in grace. In other words, the truest measure of our growth is not our behavior if that were the case, the Pharisees would have been the most mature people of all. But what does Jesus says? No, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You are whitewashed tombs, sons of the devil. So we know that it's not simply about behavior modification. The truest measure of growth is not our behavior. It is our grasp of grace. It is coming to deeper and deeper terms with our own sinfulness, God's holiness, his love for us in Christ, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And as we come deeper and deeper to terms with our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and God's love for us in Christ, this happens through the spiritual disciplines. Now, what are we talking about? Let me just list a few of those uh, spiritual disciplines. Word, our time in the scriptures, uh, wherein we are exposed to the beauty and the majesty and the sovereign plan of God to rescue an undeserving people. Solitude. It's another spiritual discipline. It's hard. It's hard to get alone, isn't it? It's hard to, it's hard with all the, the noise and, and everything around us to actually enjoy solitude. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. Along with getting alone, silence. Service is a spiritual discipline. Serving in the believing community, giving ourselves to others. Self-denial, another spiritual discipline. Worship is a spiritual discipline, both the individual worship where we, we extol God's perfections and majesties and how that actually fuels our corporate worship, which leads to celebration and other spiritual discipline. Confession, which Pastor Brandon rightly pointed out this morning, confession is a regular rhythm of the believer. It's a spiritual discipline. We confess our sins to the Lord. And James 5, we confess our sins to one another. Fellowship. Being together with God's people, fasting, generosity, giving of our resources, our time and our money for the advancement of the kingdom. These are spiritual disciplines through which God actually strengthens and deepens our faith. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, didn't you just tell us last week to labor to get away from our labors? And now you give us this long list of things. Well, I did say that. 
because of Jesus' work on, the, on, on our behalf, we no longer have to earn God's approval. We don't have to do enough to be loved. We don't have to make something of ourselves. Our salvation is not contingent on our performance, but on Christ's perfect performance, on his righteousness, which is ours only by faith, not by doing. So yes, we can rest. You don't have to prove to anybody this morning, to God or anybody else, that you're worth being loved. If you're in Christ, God loves you. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from God. But rest does not mean inactivity. Our settled standing with God in Christ doesn't mean that we can take a lazy, lethargic, or disinterested approach to our own sin and our pursuit of holiness. Quite the opposite. In those who have been loved by God in this way, in those who have been freed from the power and curse of sin, there is necessarily a desire to look more like God, to resemble more and more the one who redeemed us. This is a natural, this is a desire, it's really not natural, it's a supernatural desire by those who have been bought with a price. They want to look more and more like the one who redeemed them. They want to please more and more the one who loved them. After all, Paul says in verse 7 that what we're training for is godliness. In this case, a God-centered life. The godly person walks with God at home, work and play, and desires above all else to bring God glory. Because God loves us. So we want to please Him. But because our hearts are so self-centered and prone to wander, as the old hymn says... We must constantly, before God, reorient ourselves to receive His grace, humble ourselves before Him, confess to ourselves, to God, to others, how much we need at every moment the outpouring of His grace. And that actually takes spirit-enabled, gospel-fueled, faith-driven effort. Listen to what pastor and theologian Brian Chappell says. He says, to some ears... The command to train yourself for godliness may smack of legalism. But the difference is profound. Legalism imagines I will do this to gain a standing before God. While godly training says I will do this because I love God and I want to please him. This, uh, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, let me say it this way. If you're not participating in the spiritual disciplines, you will not grow the way God intended. If you're not spending time in the Word, if you're not spending time with the Lord in prayer, if you're not giving of your time and your resources, if you're not surrounding yourselves with, with other believers... You will not grow the way that God intended. Not because God's uh, not holding up his end of the deal. Not because God is, is unfaithful. But because we're not making ourselves, we're not availing ourselves, taking advantage of the spiritual disciplines by which God strengthens and renews and builds up. Now, this helps us to make sense of what Paul says in verse 8. Look at verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And then look at that next phrase. As it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. 
says, Paul says, bodily exercise is of some value. That's not, he's not knocking physical exercise here. It's just a corrective to an imbalanced focus on, on physical exercise. Perhaps an imbalanced focus way back then, and we know there's an imbalanced focus among many on physical exercise today. Paul must have seen, when he wrote this, he must have seen what I see when I go to the gym. seems like every time I go, I always sort of end up in the middle of the very super serious people, you know, the, um, the ones who look in the mirror the whole time sort of flexing their pectoral muscles, uh, or, or, or I somehow end up around the, the, the lady who's doing the extreme kickboxing in the aisle. So I'm trying to figure, okay, now where do I, I don't want to lose it, an eye here. How do I get around this person? Um, there's, there's, an, there's an extreme nature to some of this. Um, in fact, recently I went to play basketball at the YMCA and and as the game was about ready to start, this guy, I heard him look at me and say to another, another person, I got him. Now, that's better than I got the old guy. I get that sometimes. I hear people say that's better than that. Um, but I looked at the guy. I said, okay, no big deal. This, the guy in the navy blue shirt, he's going to guard me. But then as he got closer, I realized he didn't have a navy, navy blue shirt on. It was light blue. It was just soaked with sweat. Now, this really presented to me a, a, an existential crisis here. Because I thought, which one of these is going to weigh more heavily? My hatred for losing, which is a real thing. I hate to lose at anything. Or my disgust for repeatedly bumping into a sweaty man. So I said, which of these is really going to win here? Because I don't want to lose, but I don't like the idea of this guy kind of rubbing up against me constantly while I'm trying to play basketball. He looked like he just spent seven hours on the Stairmaster. And I thought, look, you've, I wanted to say to him, you've done enough for today. Look, you, you, you've satisfied whatever goals. You've done more than enough. Well, what Paul wants Timothy to know is, while some people may be a little extreme in their, their approach to physical exercise, it is of some value, but the training unto godliness, spiritual exercise, so to speak, spiritual training is valuable in every way in that, he says, it holds the promise for this life and the life to come. In other words, it leads to the increase of our joy even now. It leads to the strengthening of our faith even now. It leads to a greater love for God even now. And it also leads to the completion of our faith. Again, it's through the spiritual disciplines that God refines us, that he keeps us. It's through the spiritual disciplines that God reassures us of his love. He pours out his grace on us. He teaches us about his character. He reminds us of what he's done for us in Jesus to free us from fear, to free us from hell, to free us from performancism, to free us from spiritual apathy. All of that happens as God reminds us of all that he's done for us in Christ. Not simply as someone's told what to do, but as they are reminded of all that God has done. And it's through these disciplines that God reminds us of these things. As the great theologian J.C. Ryle once said, the child of God has two great marks about him. He is known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. Now, and I see people who, who really err on either side, or people who are just known for their inward warfare. They're never at rest. Everything is riding on them. They have a bad day and they're just totally in the dump, spiritually speaking, because while they would never say it, what they're really resting in is their own ability to have a good day of obedience. That's people who are just dealing with inward warfare. Now, I see people also who, 
who are on the other extreme and, and all they experience is inward peace. They don't realize the extent of their own sinfulness. They don't realize how far they have fallen from God's standard of perfection. I had a guy say to me one time, he said, why do you preach so much on sin and forgiveness and so on? And, and then he went on to say, and I won't say the way he said it exactly, but what I got a sense was this guy didn't really believe that he had sinned in the last week, maybe the last month. There was no inward warfare because he felt like he was basically doing everything God had asked him to do. So one of my responsibilities as a shepherd, as a pastor, pastor is to help people experience both. Inward peace, right? Recognizing that we're right with God because of what Jesus has done. But we still have to struggle. We still have to make every effort. We still have to battle against our own selfish desires and thoughts. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, which is about the regenerate man. He says, why is it that I always do the things I don't want to do? And the things I really don't want to do, I keep doing. There's that battle. There's that tension that goes along with being a follower of Christ. If we're not taking time, again, to study the Word, to, to pray, we're missing out on the means by which God enables us to know Him, to resemble Him, to love Him, to delight in Him. So it would not be surprising, for example, if you don't feel very close to God, if you have rejected the rhythms, the disciplines by which, again, He increases our faith. Now, the more we engage in these disciplines, the more we realize more and more that God is actually the one growing us and sanctifying us anyway. Look at verses 9 and 10. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The words translated toil, and strive are interesting words. And what they really capture the essence of here is suffering. Suffering. They're talking about suffering. Paul says we toil and strive. That is to say, we continue through our suffering because we have our hope set on the living God. Here's our final point this morning, that final faith-strengthening rhythm. God preserves His own by allowing them to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So God keeps his own. God sanctifies his own. And now God preserves his own by allowing them to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says we toil and we strive. We suffer, but to what end? Is he working so that he can merit God's salvation? Of course not. Is he toiling and striving and enduring the agony so that God might finally approve of him? Of course not. He says the reason he's going all through this is that he has his hope set on the living God. Paul knows the fact that he's being maligned. He's enduring all this persecution. Even the people who express their undying affection for him, the people that he led to faith have now turned on him. And he knows that he's going through all of these things, all of this suffering, because God is going to pour out his grace on Paul through it. God is going to keep Paul close to himself through it. It's reminiscent of what the Apostle Peter says in his first letter. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. This next phrase is critical. 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering shouldn't surprise us. Actually, we should expect it. It is by our suffering that we identify with Jesus. And it's through our suffering that God keeps us for himself. It's through our suffering that God purifies us and strengthens us. I'll never forget when I first started in pastoral ministry, barely 30 years old and was in a situation where I was trying with some other pastors and elders to lead through some very difficult change. And there was a small group of people who had really rallied against me. And then I heard this over and over. That's not the way that we've always done it here. I heard that over and over. And there were people who just really decided to dig in their heels and they were saying things about me and, and they were trying to, to, to incite others against me. And I, and I talked to another pastor in the area who'd been doing this for many, many years in, in pastoral ministry. And, and it, I'll, ne- I'll never, ever forget what this guy said to me. I called him and I explained to him some of the things that were happening in my, my young ministry and some of the things I was going through. And he said to me, what did you expect? And I, cu- I just, uh, I couldn't believe that. Like, that doesn't sound very comforting to me. What did you expect? And I just, after a long pause, I said, well... I don't know. I, I, I never would have said I expected everybody to love me, and what, but I didn't expect this. He goes, this is what happens when you work to advance the kingdom of God. You should expect suffering. This is what happens when you're a representative of Jesus Christ in a dark world. You should expect suffering. You should expect opposition. You should expect persecution. Suffering is not God's attempt to destroy us. Rather, he's stripping away everything that might capture our hearts. He is ridding us of every other potential idol on which we may be tempted to lavish our devotion. He is taking away everything that we might be inclined to put our trust in or to locate our identity in, our reputation our approval of others, our career, our strength, our success, whatever it is. He's taking those things away through suffering so that we would depend on and rely on him alone and thereby experience the richness and the fullness of joy in him, thereby rest in his work and not our own. Those who don't suffer don't experience the divine testing that purifies their faith. So let me say this very directly. If you're suffering this morning, maybe you're in a, a relationship, maybe you're in a marriage where your, your husband, he just doesn't buy it. He's just not for it. Maybe, maybe your wife is saying to you, why are you so crazy about Jesus? Maybe you're in a situation where your own parents they, they don't understand. They, they don't understand why you're in church on Sundays and why you're around Christians all the time. Maybe you're in a scenario where you go to school and the people that sit around you, they look at you, they, they, they say, why, why, are you, why do you like that? Why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you look at a book? Why do you believe a book that was written thousands of years ago? If you're suffering this morning, as a follower of Jesus, if you are in agony, if you have people who are in opposition against you, it may not feel like it, but God has you exactly where he wants you. So that, not so he'll destroy you, so that he will build you up in deeper faith in him, so that he will keep you from slipping away into unbelief. If you're not suffering, 
And of course, we all go through seasons. Let me say it this way. If you've never suffered because of your faith, if you've never had anyone oppose you because of your allegiance to Christ, it would be worth asking yourself the question, am I really toiling and striving toward godliness? Is my faith widely known? Do people recognize me as a Christ follower? If you are known as such, you will experience opposition because the more we invest in the kingdom of God, as we talked about last week, the more the enemy and his minions will take note. But the beauty is Christ is stronger still. And if you haven't made any of these spirit-enabled, gospel-driven, faith-fueled efforts that we talked about this morning, it's okay. God's not mad at you. He doesn't have you sort of lower on the scale. He's not against you now. If you're in Christ, He loves you. You belong to Him, and that's never going to change. But why not avail yourself of those means by which God will do a work in you? Why not take advantage of the spiritual disciplines through which God actually will increase your joy in Him, will strengthen your faith, will deepen your affection for Him, will increase your love for neighbor, will keep you close to himself. Now, one final note as we wrap up. The final verse of this section says, um, because we have our hope set in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, this has caused a bit of consternation among commentaries and commentators. Um, is Paul saying that everyone will be saved? saying that God is the Savior of all people, everyone's going to be saved. No, we know he's not saying that. The word translated especially is the Greek word malista, which means to be precise or in particular. What Paul is saying is that God is the Savior of all types of people, rich, poor, black, white, educated, uneducated, Jew, Gentile. If anyone is to be saved, God is the one who will do it. But to be precise, malista, God is the Savior particularly of those who believe. In other words, God offers his salvation to all people regardless of your background, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your family lineage, any of that stuff. God offers his salvation to all who would repent and believe. But we know through the overall witness of Scripture, he only saves those who believe. He only saves those who cling to him in faith And he keeps those who believe, as we've seen this morning, through means. Through Christ-centered teaching, a regular diet of Christ-centered teaching. Through engagement in the spiritual disciplines. And by allowing his very own to participate in the suffering of Christ. For their good and for his glory. May God keep us close to himself. Let's pray.